My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, as we move into our time looking into God's Word this morning, I want to talk and tell you a little story that happened a couple of months ago at our house. And uh, we were sitting downstairs, and we were watching TV, and my wife Meg grabbed my arm and said, do you hear that? There, there's like a, a sound. I'm like, ah, I don't think I hear anything in particular. And I, I said to her, you know, it's probably just the dog running around upstairs. Like you can hear the dog's nails on the floor. So don't worry about it. A couple minutes later, she says again, do you, do you hear that? Like, how are you not hearing this? I'm like, ah, I don't know. Maybe it's a dishwasher, like running right above our heads. She says, no, it's definitely, it's like a, a scurrying animal kind of noise. And I was like, no, no, hon, there's no way that there is a scurrying animal noise happening in our house. She says, no, um, there's no denying it. Like there's, so a couple of weeks went by, we're sitting downstairs again, months of me living in denial. And Meg says, how are you not hearing what I am hearing? So finally one day I'm like, you know what? I actually think that it is probably something. So there's completely mysterious noise. So I thought, you know, it sounds like it's in the vents, which is weird because if you think about your furnace, it's a closed system, right? There should be no way in, no way out, except for air to get in there. So I checked of every possible vent opening in the house. Nope, there were no gaps, nothing. Still, the sound is going scurry, scurry, scurry. So finally, on the insistence of my wife, I called someone. I called Ted the Terminator. That is his real name. Ted came out, did a little walkabout. Ted is the kind of guy, he says, I've been in the business for 40 years. I've seen it all. Within about two minutes, he says, right there, you see that? I'm like, I don't see anything. He says, look at that hole. There's no hole there. At a point where the venting comes out of our house, just for one little elbow turn to go up and feed uh, in the uh, vent by the kitchen, there's a tiny hole, less than half an inch, right beside the vent. Ted says, that's your problem right there. You got a rodent issue. They're inside your house. <laughs> it's like, well, Ted, that's why I've called you. You need to make them disappear, mostly for my wife's sake, but also so we could just have peace and quiet back in our house. And so Ted the Terminator worked his magic, and the mouse that was living in our house went to sleep forever. <laughs> this is not the actual picture of the mouse. This is just something from the internet. But there was a mouse in our house. Why do I tell you this? Not to scare you, not to think that, you know, cause marital dispute in your home for noises that you've been arguing about whether or not there are mice in your house. But because this winter we're launching into a series here at Jericho Ridge called Fear Not. And we're going to explore together some of the things that might create heart palpitations for you and might actually create fear in our hearts, in our world, and in our communities. And we're going to try and look at them from as many angles as we can and try and figure out, or, is this something that we should be afraid of or not? What should we think about these things? How should we feel about them? And one of the things that I'm beginning to realize as we've pressed into our preparation for this series is that fear is, is so pervasive and it's so sneaky, it only takes like a tiny, tiny, tiny little hole in your life. And then it gets right in there. 
and it's inside and it's like a mouse living in your house, it finds that hole that you've left exposed in your spiritual life and in your life and it just moves in there, it takes up residence, it starts having little fear babies everywhere and before you know it, fear is scurrying all through your life and making little noises everywhere it goes. And so sometimes we need to just pause and pay attention to that. And also we probably need to leave the discussion of mice before it creates heebie-jeebies in you uh, and begin to think that every noise in your house is a rodent wanting to get in and take up residence. I'm sure you'll be fine. I, I think you'll be fine. Maybe you'll be fine. I don't know. Uh, but as we prepared for this series, we looked through with our team uh, and began to dig into the Bible and see from start to finish, what does the Bible say about fear from Genesis to Revelation. And I was reminded that one of the most common commands in the Bible is some variation of do not be afraid or fear not. We've already seen in the first two weeks of our series two reasons why we don't have to be afraid. The first one is that God is with us. That when God says don't be afraid, He's not telling us that because we've been left alone, we're orphaned or abandoned, and that we should just suck it up and figure out a way to deal with this. God says, the reason you don't need to be afraid is because I am walking with you. And then last weekend, we heard our friend's story about his experience coming to faith in a Muslim country and from that background, but also he taught through the story of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where God says to his people, do not be afraid I am going to fight this battle for you. You need to stand still and watch me work. And so it was such a good reminder that some of the things and some of the people that we're afraid of are sometimes not as scary as we might imagine. But then we still have to wrestle with the question of, so then why do I still feel afraid? Why does fear still find its way in to my life? What are the elements that are going on there? And so sometimes fear just finds that smallest, tiniest little crack and that unattended part of your life and it just wiggles its way in. And I think part of the reason we need to recognize is that the kind of fear we're talking about in this series, this is not a a series on psychology. We're talking about fear because fear is a spiritual issue. It has spiritual roots to it. There's a kind of fear that's not merely a byproduct of challenging circumstances or natural neurological processes transpiring in our bodies. Fear has spiritual roots to it, spiritual components to it. What do I mean when I say this? One of the things that we learn from our our brothers and sisters in Africa is for them, everything is spiritual. And they would, they would, they would think that when we, the way we divide things up in our North American worldview, they're like, well, how could you not, how could you not see that that has a spiritual component to it? But see, we, we like a lot of times to focus on the manifestations of fear in our world. So is it presenting itself physically or f- can I feel it in my body emotionally? Is there relational components to this? Are there circumstances that are creating fear in my life? And all of those things can be very true and wise. And Pastor Wally's going to talk a little bit more about some of those next weekend. But what we seldom talk about and give credence to is the spiritual roots of something like fear. We like to deal with what's on the surface, 
in North American culture. And then we only end up often dealing with the symptomatic elements of things and not root causes. So that is simply like turning up the TV louder in the basement like I did so you can't hear the mouse living in your house, but the mouse is still there. And so you have to be ready to deal with where it comes from, not merely mask fear when it shows and the writers of the scriptures use a fascinating phrase that I think I ignored for many, many years when they talk about describing fear and how it operates. In his encouragement to be faithful in prayer and to nurture the gifts of the Spirit that he was given, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but he's given us a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Did you catch that? I underlined it for you so you could catch it. Fear has a spiritual component or root to it, a spirit of fear. In this discussion, Paul's saying there's gifts that the spirit wants to give you, and desires to give, spiritual power, love, self-discipline, self-control. And then there are anti-gifts, which are also spiritual, that can come into your life, but which are to be rejected because they do not come from Holy Spirit. That is a spirit of fear and a spirit of timidity. And if your Bible, like mine, has a little uh, notes in it, sometimes it, it does like a little cross-reference thing where it'll tell you, oh, if this is a topic that shows up here, let me give you some ideas as to where else it shows up. And so in my Bible, 1 Timothy 1.7 has a note that goes over to Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8.15 says the same thing. You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful or a spirit of slavery that draws you back into fear a spirit of fear. Instead, again the contrast, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children and so now we call out Abba Father. Again, fear is given spiritual attributes here that are contrasted starkly with the presence of God's Holy Spirit. And so what I want you to do is turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to trace the flow of thought that precedes this statement and this part of the argument and figure out why does he get to this place and help, how can that help us understand and recognize and root out a spirit of fear in our lives. And there's three things to pay attention to in this chapter. I'm going to start reading in Romans chapter 1, uh, Romans chapter 8, rather, verse 1, and I'll read from the New Living Translation. There is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So let's stop there for just a moment, because right away we see the first entry point, the first little hole that can be exposed that fear tries to gain entry to in our lives. And it begins with condemnation. There is no condemnation, Scripture says, to those who are in Christ Jesus. But condemnation and fear have a linked relationship. Condemnation, accusations, those voices inside of your head 
that repeat things and tell you things like, um, you don't really have your act together enough to darken the doors of a church. What are you doing here? I mean, Jericho Ridge puts up its core values every weekend, and one of them is authentic community. I mean, if you were really authentic, if people knew the real you who were sitting around you in this place, they would reject you. You shouldn't be here. Or voices like, oh, oh, you think you should serve, do you? Oh, how cute. You think you should become a member of the worship and song team. Oh, like you have the right to lead anyone in worship. Or, oh, you should, oh, yeah, right, you should go on that trip to Guatemala for sure. Yeah, yeah, you're a fraud. You never talk to anybody about your faith, and now you're going to go somewhere else in the world and do that? Good luck with that. Just sit down. Go home. Or voices like, your spiritual life is not anywhere close to where people around you are or people that have been Christians for as long as you. Why aren't you doing things that they're doing? Why aren't you as advanced in the faith as they are? Accusation, condemnation. Two weeks ago, when I stood up to preach and we were launching in to our series, the voices in my head started up. Standing right here. Oh, preaching on fear, are we? Interesting. Who do you think you are to stand up and say anything about that? say things like, do not be afraid. You're not even a natural, fearfully person by personality, so you have no authority to talk about anything like this that would be helpful or remotely helpful to people. No one's going to believe anything you say. You should just quit while you're ahead. Friends, condemnation happens even in the pulpit. These voices that remind us of things that we should be afraid of. And here's the tricky part about fear's rootedness in condemnation, is there's often a measure of truth to these accusations. Like just enough to kind of hook us in, where we think, you know what, that, that is kind of true. I, I don't have my life together in that way. But the scriptures are not unclear as to where the source of condemnation and accusation is. See, if the voice is bringing conviction in an area of sin and inviting us to places of repentance, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But if it's condemnation and accusation that's driving a wedge between us and God, that is not the voice of Holy Spirit. The, one of the names for Satan in the Bible is the accuser. We see it in the book of Job, in the book of uh, Zechariah, and in Revelation 12, which we studied in this fall, where it says that Satan's most delightful task is to remind God of all of the faults and deficiencies in your life. He stands, uh, Revelation 12, 10 says, day and night, day and night, day and night, day and night, accusing, condemning you and I. And part of the thing is that he's got some great ammunition to do it with because none of us is perfect. And so he's a master of taking those areas of our lives where there are deficiencies and exposures and just exploiting them and magnifying them. And pretty soon, it starts to feel a little bit like it looked in the sky this morning when you got up. Just dark, oppressive, heavy 
clouds of condemnation just settling in in every part of your life. And you begin to believe it and say, you know what? Those voices are right. I'm no good at that. I'll never beat that addiction. I'll never overcome that habit. I'll never be able to control my tongue. I'll never... What's the use of even trying anymore? But see, this is the whole reason why Romans 8 contrasts life in the spirit of Christ with a spirit of fear. I love how Eugene Peterson puts Romans 8, 1 in his translation, The Message. He says, those who enter into Christ being here for us, here with us, no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying, black cloud of condemnation because a new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, which we also experienced this morning, has magnificently cleared the air freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. That kind of freedom that you can live in, a new power is in operation. I want that kind of freedom. I want that kind of freedom for you. And the good news is that you don't have to live under that cloud of condemnation. But how do we get from here to there? How do we kill the mouse that's gotten into your house? Well, like a good exterminator, Paul goes on in Romans 8 to conduct a kind of walkabout, a little bit of a sight assessment to figure out, well, how much fear has actually taken root in your life and how did it get there? And so there's a few clear signs that he points to that a spirit of fear is gaining ground. Let's look at verse 5 and verse 6 in Romans chapter 8. So this is how you would know that fear is dominating your life. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind is going to lead you to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind is going to lead to life and to peace. So one of the clear signs that a spirit of fear is gaining ground is to figure out what you spend your time thinking about. Perhaps, not surprisingly, those who have allowed fear to get into their life and gain and have little fear babies all over the place have a thought process that is dominated by fear. And so when you begin to ask yourself, what do I spend time thinking about? It's one way of just testing how much fear rushes into those conversations and thought processes. Think about it this way. If I were to ask you right now, where did you see God at work this week in your world? Some of you would have to think a very long time before you would come up with an answer to that. Some of you would say, okay, been on the lookout already, I know, and I can identify a couple key areas where God, by his grace, was moving in my world and some of my relationships, whatever that looked like for you. But some of you, it might take a little bit longer to think about that. But if I asked you right now, flip it around, talk to me about one thing you thought about that immediately you were afraid, fear gained a grip in your heart. A lot of us could just start listing them. Oh, you only want one? I got like 16. Where do you want to begin? We're so quick to spend our time focused on what we're afraid of and allowing fear to come in and govern 
those areas of our lives instead of being governed by thinking about how the Spirit of God might be working in those areas. So it can be helpful to ask ourselves, what do I spend my time thinking about? Where do my thoughts wander? And then if you're making a decision in particular, to ask God by his spirit to speak to you and say, God, is there any way in which this decision that I am making is being influenced by fear? Because Romans 8, 5, and 6 reminds us that fear is going to govern some of the ways and patterns in which we think. And so we will make decisions based on those things unless we're attentive to and inviting God by his spirit to change some of those things. Because Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, and he says this, But you, you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. So again, this is another litmus test of how much fear is taking root in your life. Ask yourself the question, how responsive am I to God's Spirit? How responsive am I to the Spirit of God? Because this will help get at that question of controlling influence in my life. If I can hear the voice of of God by his spirit speaking and I'm willing to walk in obedience to it, it's a controlling or it's gaining a controlling influence in my life or in your life. I think one of the things that's helpful to think about is do you remember that uh, Pixar movie Inside Out? How many of you remember that or watch that? Okay, a good number of you. So remember Pixar movie Inside Out is about voices that live inside of your head. And in, in true Disney character, they animate them. And there's five controlling influences in this particular person's life. Disgust, fear, joy, sadness, and anger. And so they're all vying for the control to try and see who can push the switch and make the person do certain things at certain times. And they work together on these decision-making functions. And then there's scenes in the movie where fear actually rests the others out of the control room and gains access and starts pulling the switches of levers in this person's life. And it's clear, like, you do not want fear. You do not want this guy at the control center of your decision-making. It's not going to lead to helpful, productive, wise things. But here's the incredibly good news that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. He says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what the sinful nature or what a spirit of fear urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, if you let it control the switches, it's going to lead to death. For if through the power, but if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led or controlled by the Spirit of God are children of God. You have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. So this is the second truth that we bump up against when we come to recognizing and rooting out fear. The second truth is you are under no obligation to give in to fear. Our sinful nature, our part of us as human beings that urges us towards choices that are not God's best intentions or interests is not an irresistible force that you are powerless against. You are under 
no obligation if you are a child of God to do what the sinful nature urges you to do. Because our sinful natures, aided by Satan the accuser, have wonderful plans for your life. And they would love to share those with you. But here we bump up against the clear teaching of Scripture that our urges, our desires, do not require us to acquiesce to them. When I listen to people talk sometimes, they'll say things like, oh, I'm just a, a naturally angry person. I mean, I grew up in, all, everyone in my culture is angry. And so I just, I can't help it. There's just nothing I can do. Or I grew up in a family that was angry. So I, I really have no excuse. I just can't control my temper. It's not really my fault. You are under no obligation to do what your sinful nature tells you to do. You see, we all have urges and opportunities, be they biological or social or personal or circumstantial, that we might feel like doing. We might be drawn toward them in some way. You might be drawn towards having a sexual relationship with a person who is not your spouse. You might feel like it's easier not to tell the truth and therefore you can impress a bunch of other people and tell a good story. You might feel like giving in to peel pressure and making an easy decision. You might feel greedy and think, well, it doesn't really matter what I do then. I just need to make as much money as I can, no matter what the means. But in case you have not figured it out yet, it is not healthy for you to give into and do everything that you feel like doing. That would be the time to say amen. <laughs> if you live by the dictates, where's Sandy Young when we need him? <gasps> He's preaching uh, up at the care center uh, like they do every three weeks. But you, if you give in to the dictates or directives that do not originate with the Spirit of God, you are going to reap the consequences that, of following those things that urge you down dark and destructive pathways. And so Paul says here, don't do it. You are under no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. And that's why in the Scriptures, when God says, fear not, it's not just a nice suggestion or a good idea. It's a command. It's an instruction. But it's an empowered instruction. Meaning that God by his spirit desires and will give you the strength that is necessary to stand up and resist the spirit of fear. We're reminded elsewhere, no temptation is seized you except what's common to other people. And God will give you a way out. He will allow you and empower you to resist that. Because even if you're a person who's naturally anxious or who worries a lot or has trouble trusting God or says, I, I have trouble being led by the Spirit of God, you can still walk away from the controlling influence of fear in your life. Because God would not tell you to do something that you cannot do. He wouldn't say fear not if he didn't also grant you the empowering presence of the Spirit to make possible obedience to his instruction. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. This does not mean that children of God never experience fear. What it does mean is that God is going to assist and strengthen you to more than just simply deal with fear at that superficial level and deal with it either 
socially or psychologically or medically or circumstantially. And again, we're going to talk about the way in which those things can be very helpful to address next weekend. And Pastor Wally's going to share part of his story. But one of the things that I see in his story as well as the teaching of the scriptures on how to deal with spiritual realities is that you have to deal with spiritual realities spiritually. And because fear has a spiritual component to it, If you think about it like a tree that's growing, let's get away from our mouse analogy, the tree that's growing, sometimes with a tree of fear that we've tilled the soil for, it's planted, it's taken root, it's grown, now it's a really big tree taking over lots of areas of your life. Sometimes we just go at it, we cut off a few little branches and we're like, good, dealing with the spirit of fear in my life, fantastic. Or maybe we get a little bit more aggressive with the pruning shears. We're like, yeah, I'm going to take this thing down. And we get down, maybe we even get down to the trunk. We get a chainsaw. We're like, yeah, I'm going to hack this thing off. But if there's roots of fear that have got down into your life, we have to ask ourselves, what have I allowed to take root in my life? What kind of soil conditions have allowed fear to grow from a seedling to a sapling to a massive tree that's sucking all the nutrients and life out of me. Because friends, all of us wrestle with fear to a certain extent. Even the ones who look on the outside like they're the most brave and have it all together. And in a few minutes, we're going to do what we do every weekend here at Jericho, and that is have a time of prayer ministry. And what I want you to do is get ready to go up to one of our prayer team. Uh, And today that's uh, Meg, myself, Wally, and Sylvia. And say, you know what, I need God's help to just start pulling out some of those roots of fear in my life. We would love to pray with and for you. Because part of the reason that fear is so dangerous is that its root systems just start going into all kinds of different places that we sometimes don't pay attention to. But the other reason why fear is so dangerous and why we need to learn to recognize it and root it out is that it actually has a an objective. The spirit of fear's primary objective is to separate you from the perfect love of God. Look at how the flow of thought continues in Romans chapter 8, and we'll go to verse 35 and 37, where it asks, can anything, anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that God actually no longer loves you if you have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute, in danger, threatened with death? No. Despite the presence of all of those things in your life or in your circumstances or in our world, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Verse 38, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us by its own power or initiative from God's love. Not death or life, angelic powers, demonic powers or principalities and powers, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. There's not a power in the sky above. Again, principalities, powers, or in the earth below. Nothing in all of creation, in the created order, will ever be able 
to separate us from the love of God because it's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, one of the reasons that fear is so dangerous is that it attempts to make you feel that you are distant from God. That God doesn't really love you. Friends, as we prepare to move into a time of responding to God, I want to read Romans 8.15 again. This time I've underlined a different segment. It says, You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you have received God's spirit. You received it when he adopted you as his own children. And that is what allows you and gives you the right or authority to call God Abba Father. The reason this is an image of adoption is so powerful is that if you think about adoption, the process doesn't begin with the adopted child. It begins with the parent. It begins with someone saying, I want that person. I want another person to be a part of my family. I have love. I have room in this family. And the same thing is true with God. God's love for you is so deep and so vast, he said, I, I want you to be a part of my family. I want to initiate a process by which you could become my son or my daughter. I want you to call me Papa. That's what that word Abba means, this word of just intimacy and endearedness of a child to a parent. And friend, if you're here today and you've actually never experienced that, you've never said yes to that invitation. You will live your life feeling as if you were a slave to fear. You'll be afraid of God. You'll be afraid of death. You'll be afraid of all kinds of things. But a person who lives under that blackout of condemnation and thinking believes that no one loves them. No one wants them. They can never be good enough for God. But friends, we're, we're reminded here in this passage by this image of adoption that that simply isn't true. The rest of Romans 8 and in fact the whole of the argument in the text of Romans is so clear that God's radical love for you is so far reaching that he sent his son Jesus into the world to live as our perfect example, to die as our perfect sacrifice, to be raised to life by the power of the spirit and to be ascended into heaven where right now he sits at the right hand of the throne and when the accuser walks in and starts saying, you know, let me talk to you about all the deficiencies. Let me bring condemnation and accusation against this person and this person and this person. Christ sits right now at the right hand of God, countering everything that the accuser says and is trying to whisper, saying, that one is my child. I have adopted that one. That one calls me Father, and so you get your grubby hands off of that one. But you have to give Jesus permission to be your advocate, to be your savior, your forgiver, and your leader. You do that in a place of coming into God's family by simply saying yes to Jesus. You say, God, I am done with living as a slave to fear. I want to be a child of yours. I want to receive what you have done for me and be adopted into your family. And friend, if that's you today, don't wait. Don't think, I'll get around to that eventually. Like today is your day. 
Respond in obedience and faith. And some of you have already said yes to that invitation to Jesus. And you're still going to struggle on this side of eternity, recognizing and rooting out fear. And so I want to mention just a couple simple things that you can do if you say, I am a child of God, but I still wrestle. I still struggle. The first is recognizing that that breaking of that cycle of condemnation comes with truth beginning to speak truth into those places. And when the cycle of condemnation starts up and says, you're worth nothing. Look at all the places in your life where you've just fallen down and wrecked it all. What is the truth about who you are in Christ? We're actually going to model that in a couple of minutes. And Jared and the team are going to come now and prepare to lead us in songs of response. And when we sing the song, Here's My Heart, Lord, one of the lines in that is, speak what is true. And we're going to have people speak out the truth of Scripture over you and over us, just even corporately, as a way of washing over and loosening and breaking that cycle of fear that we can so easily give into. It's why God's word is so powerful. It's why we built in a daily reading plan into the Jericho Ridge app. It's why we have small groups to help you get into God's word and connect with it in in truth in a more deep way. And so this weekend or this week, you might want to make a commitment to letting the voice of truth speak louder than the voice of lies and shame and condemnation. So that's the first one. Break the cycle of condemnation with truth. The second is this. Break the cycle of sins and sinful deeds by repentance. Remember, Paul reminds us, the scriptures say, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do, but sometimes we still do it. And so in that moment, what we need to do is important to just come to God in confession and repentance, which is simply agreeing with God that what we did was wrong and allowing the grace of Jesus to flow into your life. Repentance is simply saying, God, I want to make a different choice. Would you empower me by your spirit to do that? You might want to take some time in our worship time in song responding, just in prayer and saying, God, I want to confess some things to you. I want to take this time for you to allow your forgiveness to touch places in my heart, in my life, and experience healing. The last one is breaking the cycle of distance and separation by placing yourself again intentionally into the presence of God, both individually and corporately. See, fear's primary tactic is to separate and to whisper that the reason you're experiencing fear or trouble or hardship or anxiety is you probably did something to cause a rift between you and God. But if you've practiced repentance and said, God, I'm coming to you, just search my heart, clean it up, get rid of that stuff, then take some time right now and set aside maybe some intentional time this week to place yourself into the presence of God. Just say, God, I'm here. I am listening to you. Would you speak to me by your spirit? Maybe turn the radio off on one of your drives this week and just spend some time in silence and solitude asking God, God, would you just take away that spirit of fear from me? Remind me again that I'm your child. I'm going to invite you to stand uh, with me as you are able. And Jared and the team are going to lead us in songs of response. Wally and Sylvia are at the back. Megan, I'll be at the back there. And we would love to pray with you and for you. Let me pray for you as we move into this time. God, we thank you that you have not given us a spirit of fear. You've given us a spirit of power. 
It's power of your spirit, not self-engendered uh, or, or we work ourselves up so that we have a spirit of power and discipline and a sound mind. We thank you that that comes from our relationship and our relatedness rightly to you. And so, God, we ask that you would speak to us in this place today. If there's areas of my life, if there's areas of our life corporately here at Jericho, if there's areas in the lives of my brothers and sisters that require repentance, that we need to walk away from things of fear, God would just in the stillness and quietness speak to us, Jesus. We want to hear what is true from your word and in spoken again over our lives. And we receive it by faith in the name of Jesus. Let's worship together.